This is called Transfiguration Sunday. It's also the um, Sunday before Lent. And I don't see Julia. But M Stephanie's here. And um, <laughs> she will help you if you would like to have a Bible bag for your children. So Second Peter, uh, the first chapter, 16 through 21 is where we're going to be focusing today. Second Peter, did I say second or first? Second Peter, the first chapter, too many numbers, 16 through 21. Let's read together. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from the Lord, the Father, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for um, the message that you have for each one of us today. May our hearts be open to your Holy Spirit as we prepare our hearts, God, for communion. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to surround us and to be in this place in new ways. In Jesus' name, amen. All of us have had the experience of someone being late when we believe that they should have been there to pick us up or to meet us. And when they don't show up, we give them a little bit of grace before we get irritated that they're not there. Where are they? Did they forget? Then we start to wonder, do I have the correct time? Am I in the right place? And then sometimes panic can set in. Maybe something happened to them. What if they're in an accident? What if they're in the hospital? Our minds can start to go everywhere. And in the age before cell phones, before we were all connected to everybody on the planet, this was incredibly disconcerting. This is especially true if the one waiting is a child who's hoping for a parent to show up, hoping they haven't been forgotten, and then wondering what they'll do if that's the case. Were you ever in a classroom in elementary school and the teacher had to leave the room? That's a funny dynamic. Some kids sit quietly, wanting the teacher to know when they return that whatever happens next, they were innocent. Some kids start going wild right away, throwing things and running around. Some kids get bossy, telling everyone to be quiet. Stop it, the teacher's gonna come. Other kids just watch in laughter or disbelief, enjoying a bit of respite from the regular school day. If the teacher has gone longer than expected, they may get total chaos when they return. The passage that we read today is about a group of people like us who are waiting for Jesus to come back again. Peter is addressing the church in this letter because there's danger, not from outside the body, but from inside 
There were false teachers, people who believed in Jesus, who were telling the believers that he was not returning again, ever. For this reason, they decided, oh, we waited long enough, in this case, about 30 years, and it's clear he's not coming back. Therefore, they were living for themselves and encouraging everyone else to do the same. When we stop believing that someone is going to show up, sometimes we act in a whole different way than we might if they were there, especially if that someone is the Lord. In this passage, Peter gives two compelling reasons why the teachers are wrong and they should not be listened to. One is because he has seen Jesus in his full majesty and greatness. And the other is because of the truth found in scriptures. So we want to look at both of these reasons today as we, and examine our hearts in light of what Peter is saying and encouraging us as we partake of communion. So the first reason that Peter gives as to why he's certain Jesus is coming back is because he what he witnessed as a disciple. Three of the Gospels give an account of what is called the transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and all of a sudden, with no warning, he's changed before them from an ordinary person to someone who is shining as bright as the sun. He completely is all in white. And then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah are there. And he's talking to them. And Peter's recalling this moment for the church when the veil between heaven and earth was lifted and he saw Jesus in his true nature as Jesus really is. And Peter heard the voice of God telling them, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It was so awe-inspiring that they hit the ground, afraid even to look up. Now, an experience like that clearly stays with you. It shapes your whole life, not only giving you a great story, but compelling you to do whatever is necessary to ensure that God is made real to those around you, to people who are lost, to people who are hurting or without hope, to those who need to be corrected. Peter has seen Jesus in glory. Peter heard the voice of God. He knows the truth that he doesn't want the church to miss. This isn't a story cleverly invented by he and the other disciples. Who would make that up? They saw his majesty. One of the best arguments that the gospels are true is that those who followed Jesus gave their lives for others to know him. Peter is a trustworthy source, and he's appealing to them on his basis of experience. In chapter 3 of this letter, Peter calls those who are falsely teaching, he calls them scoffers, and he quotes them, and this is what they said. Where is this coming that Jesus promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on the same as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, nothing's changed and we don't see him game over. The problem is, though, not just their insistence of what they believed, but how their belief then was tied into how they were choosing to live. Let's always remember that our theology, what we believe about God, informs our practice every single day of our lives. They didn't believe in the judgment of God. Teacher's not coming back. 
So since they were pretty certain that Jesus was, wasn't coming, they were like, well, we can do what we want. They were in active rebellion against God's holiness and trying to convince other people to do the same. But what about us? Jesus has been gone a lot longer than a generation. And still we wait in sure hope and trust that he will fulfill his promises. Like then, the modern church wrestles with how we should live until Christ returns. And like then, the days can get pretty long. Today, I don't see many in the church scoffing and using Jesus' waiting as, a, as, a re, as an excuse to sin. But I do notice that we aren't necessarily as anxious for him to come back as one might think. I remember a number of years ago, we were at Oak Glen with a bunch of people, and I don't know, I was in my late 20s or early 30s or something, and we were at a retreat in the mountains with um, other people from here and other people from the denomination, and one of our pastors from back east was there, and we were all praying together, like in a little group kind of thing, and she was sitting next to me, and we were praying for someone who was going through a particularly trying situation, and she prayed quietly, oh, Lord Jesus, please come. Please come, Lord Jesus. Now, she was quoting from the end of Revelation, where John ends his letter with a prayer that is for the whole church for all time. When we ask for help from the Lord in his name, he does come and help us. Whenever two or three are gathered in his name, he's there in the middle of them. Please help us, Lord Jesus. We need your strength, and we need your wisdom, and we need your presence. But at that time, that is not how I heard it. When she prayed, please, Lord Jesus, come, I thought she was praying for him to come right then. And I was like, inwardly, I remember thinking, please don't pray that. <laughs> Honestly, I am so not ready for that to happen. I haven't even begun to live my life barely. I have things I want to do. Don't come now, Lord, I prayed to counter her prayer, that would wreck my life. <laughs> now, I'm confessing this to you because in this clinging of our earthly life, we put ourselves in danger today. Because, of course, we, we, we put our hope in Jesus and his resurrection power. We, we, we ask him to help us to reach our neighbors and for stopping injustice and, of course, for salvation. But I don't think that we always stop and think a lot about looking forward to the day of Christ's coming. I see people of all ages in our culture, doesn't matter if they're healthy or they're sick or if they are rich or poor, they often put their hope in this life more than the one that is to come. But remember, Jesus stands today at the right hand of the Father. He is the head of the church right now in all of his majestic glory. But sometimes I still pray to the carpenter's son. Maybe because he's more accessible or more approachable. But we should be praying to the king of glory, to the lamb who was slain and sits on the throne. Like the words that Doug reminded us this morning. Peter trusted Jesus would come again because he saw that Jesus. He saw eternity. And he wants to remind us about it. The second reason that Peter gives for being certain that Jesus is coming back again is because of the truth of Scripture. 
Apparently, the false teachers were saying that there was no future judgment and the scriptures couldn't be trusted in that regard. Peter's saying, yeah, the scriptures are in alignment with all that I experienced in Jesus and all of my experiences and ours make scripture all the more certain. Peter speaks with authority, but the word given by God is our main source of guidance and wisdom. If we start throwing out the parts that we don't like, like the second coming, we might as well throw out all of it. When Peter affirms the scriptures as a revelation from God, written by those uniquely inspired, he's refuting the false teachers who are actually making up their own truth. They might as well write it down and call it scripture. Peter gives us some beautiful imagery here. He says the scriptures are a light to those who are living in the dark. The word for dark here actually means thirsty, sunburnt, squalid. So the words of the prophetic writers are a tool God has given us so that we can see our way. But they also help quench our souls when we need refreshment from the Lord. They will be a light to us and they will sustain us until the night ends and we are brought into the shining presence of our Savior. The Old Testament was seen in Peter's time as completely predicting the Lord's returning. Jesus fulfilled many prophecies in coming, but there are still many that have yet to come to fruition. Prophecies relating to peace and God's kingdom reigning forever for justice and judgment and mercy so that all the enemies and the evildoers will be put in subjection to God. Creation will be restored. There will be no more suffering. His righteousness will be on display for all and every knee will bow down. Jesus himself speaks of this time when he says the Son of Man will reign. He talks about the difficulties that will happen for those who do not trust him. So Peter's words are reminding us of God keeping his promises both for blessing and for judgment. But Peter also wants to remind us of the most important thing. He says that the Bible was not merely written by human hands for human interpretation or motivation. It was written by people when God inspired them and carried them along by the Holy Spirit. Again, there's nice imagery here, like a sailboat being carried along by the wind. The church moves forward by the breath of God and always, including scripture. God promises that he'll be with us at the end of the age. And he promises that through scripture. This passage ties in two of God's greatest gifts to his people, his son and his word. Just as God revealed himself on the mountain to Moses when he gave the law, Jesus revealed his true nature to the disciples on a mountain. Experiencing God in that way led those men to go on to lead others. Moses led the people of Israel through the desert and people, and Peter helps lead the church. And it's easy to see the similarities. A group of believers who are in a covenant relationship with the Almighty, who grumble along the way, as they wonder where God is leading them, who hope of a new land someday soon, who work out their salvation while waiting for what was promised. We who are on the journey today as God's people have the gift of seeing those who have gone before us, both their faithfulness and their missteps. We too wait for the Lord to come and rescue us from darkness. How wonderful to not be alone in the dark. 
and to be thankful for the light that he gives us daily through his spirit and his word. Yet still we wait. And while we wait for Jesus to return, as he told us, we work and we play and we laugh and we struggle and we worship and we pray, we live. And one more thing we do is remember. Jesus told us specifically that we are regularly to partake of the communion that he instituted so that we might remember him and remember his death on our behalf. So coming forward for communion is an affirmation that we believe Jesus is real and he is not a cleverly made up story. It's an action that says, we believe God has given us his son so that we might have light in a dark place. We affirm in communion that we are ready for Jesus to come again in glory. And if we aren't, then we can talk honestly with him about that. Today could also be a moment where we examine our theology in light of scripture and see if there's something that we have been disregarding that he has said to us. And on this Sunday before Lent, may it be a time of honesty and confession for you before the Lord. Today we're going to partake of communion by intention. So this morning we're going to ask that when you come forward, you come with your hands open, symbolizing that we receive the grace and the gift of God. It's not something that we simply take. So we will break off a piece of bread for you and hand it to you, and then you may dip it in the juice. To keep the juice clean, please dip just the bread and not your fingers. You then can kneel at the altar, or you can go back to your seats. Let us say the liturgy together. 